Welcome to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. We're here to discuss public policy issues in our home state of Colorado and beyond. Making Action Happen is presented by Action 22. Find out more about our organization at action22.org. Now, here are your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. Welcome, everybody, back to Making Action Happen. I'm Sarah Blackhurst. And I'm Brian McCain. And we are here today with um, the lovely and wonderful Heidi Ganahl. As you know, Heidi is running for governor of Colorado and this upcoming election. It's going to be a really interesting one, 2022, um, from a legislative perspective and from the perspective of everyone who's running and all of this um, is right on the tail end of a major redistricting that happens every 10 years. And so this summer, we spent a whole lot of time on that and all the players are the same, but they're very different. And so Heidi Ganahl has uh, joined us and she's joined Action 22. We're really excited to have her. As you know, with Action 22, we really are strive very hard to be nonpartisan on either side. And so we have candidates that are members that will come on our show throughout the year. And we're very excited to have Heidi with us today to just really introduce herself to everybody. I think this is your first long interview of your campaign. Yes, Heidi? At least um, with Action 22, yes. Um, I'm excited to talk to the community and, and uh, hear from you guys more about what, what's important, what issues are hot right now. Yeah, thanks. We, we appreciate that. Heidi, can you start with just telling us a little bit about who you are? And then we're going to jump into why you're running. That sounds great, Sarah. Well, I'm a homegrown Colorado kid. I grew up the road in Monument, right outside of the Air Force Academy. Um, my dad was a police officer. Um, my my um, family always encouraged me to do big things. We didn't have a lot of money, but a lot of love and support. And so over the years, I really um, grew to love entrepreneurship and starting businesses. And I'm best known for launching Camp Bow Wow, the country's largest pet care franchise, which I sold a few years ago, but grew over about 15 years and created thousands of jobs all over the the country, helping people do what they love, which was taking care of dogs every day. And I'm now married to one of the top barbecue cooks in the country, Jason, who has GQ Barbecue, and we have four kids. I have Tori, who's 26, and then Holly, who's 12, and our twins, Jack and Jenna, who are nine. And um, I'm also an elected CU regent statewide. So I ran in 2016. I've been a regent for about five years, so I'm happy to talk all things higher ed and why college is so expensive and how we got rid of safe spaces. And boy, there's a lot going on there, too. So just uh, I have to say a few things to start off. First off, if I just noticed on the back of my computer here, there's a lot of little kid stickers because my <laughs> daughter who's in uh, school put that on <laughs> and I forgot about that. So, uh, that, that's fun. But also, uh, my dad was a cop as well. So I grew up with the, the dad police officer and my stepmom was a cop as well. So he oh could, my gosh. you know how that I'm sure we could uh, trade some stories on that. And then you have twins and Sarah has twin boys also. It's crazy being a twin mom, isn't it? Oh my gosh, Sarah, how old are your twins? Uh, my boys, identical boys are 15. They just turned 15 in November. How And how old are your? 
there are nine, a boy and a girl, Jack and Jenna. Okay. And yes, every day is an adventure. And I don't know about you, but I don't remember most of the first few years of their life. It was no, so crazy. It's <laughs> I, the first, for sure, the first six weeks, I don't even know who that person was. The first six <laughs> months. Um, yeah, I'm. there's a lot of blanks in there. And it just feels like it was in sixes. So, you know, six weeks, six months, I or maybe I just put that as a benchmark is, you know, they get to this age and this age and this age. Um, and it's, it's a different, uh, it's a different world, but twins are awesome. They are awesome. It's a lot of fun. And uh, I mean, the three little ones are at home. Tori's living outside the house now, but they, they like to triangulate a lot. So we have a lot of brawls that go on in the house and they kind of pick their battle, like pick one, one or the other, but uh, um, it's, it's such a blessing and they um, keep every, keep every day fun and adventurous. And I mean, they're the reason I'm running. I'm just really worried about Colorado and what's happening to our state. So I call myself a mom on a mission. Oh, there you go. There you go. And I have to say that uh, recently I did get to sample your barbecue um, and it was really very, very good. So I enjoyed that. So you've started a lot of businesses. You're a mom. Um, I, I do understand what it is to be a twin mom. It's a whole different, um, it's a different ball game, but I think uh, there's some skills that you gain there in order to do the kind of work that we do, isn't there? Oh, yes. I think multitasking is first on the list. And then patience, lots of patience and just getting stuff done. My goodness. Um, when you're managing a household or managing the University of Colorado or, you know, get Bow Wow, you learn how to solve big problems and make a difference and, you know, get results. And that's you're managing three of the toughest things to manage, right? Four kids at home, which I have four kids, too. So I know how that goes. <laughs> College students. Oh, yeah. And dogs. <laughs> the dogs are the easy part. I just have a, a new grand puppy, actually, who's a little golden retriever. And um, man, she reminds me just to let loose, enjoy life. They love unconditionally, you know, no grudges held. That's why we love dogs so much. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. All right, Heidi. So the big question, and, you know, this is always the question why are you running for governor? Well, I, I love Colorado. It's um, near and dear to my heart, and I've seen it change a lot over the last few years, and it's unacceptable to me to see what's happening to our state. I think rural Colorado is being ignored, and, and a lot of things are happening intentionally to destroy the beauty of our, our rural rural part of our state, and that's really bothering me. Crime is skyrocketing. The cost of living's out of control. I mean, I, my 26-year-old's having a hard time of being able to afford to live here. And I want her to stay and I want my grandkids to stay. I want all of us to be in Colorado and live here a long time. And then finally, um, we, we're facing a mental health crisis in this state. Um, our kids are really struggling. We have the sixth highest teen suicide rate in the country, fifth highest addiction rate for kids. Um, about 70% of our kids can't or aren't doing math at proficiency. And these are issues that are going to uh, destroy our, our future for our kids here in Colorado. And so I, I really, uh, like I said, I'm a mom on a mission. I want to turn things around. I want to get back to that Colorado way of life that we love, that so many of us understand is slipping away. And I believe um, it's time. It's time to change the direction of our state. So with the the mental health issues, with specifically with children, and I'm focusing more on early teen to senior level of high school and even into college. Um, do you think this was coming ahead of time? Do you think this problem was already 
I want to say developing. Um, and then with COVID hitting and remote learning and everything that we're going through with this pandemic, do you think that is the main cause or was that just the catalyst of something we would have seen happen anyway? Yeah, I think it was evolving already um, for various reasons and it intensified it when they were kept out of the classroom, kept out, kept out of playing sports. I mean, very isolating. Um, COVID was very isolating and I think some of the policies made it worse. And so I think we've got to keep our kids in school. We've got to keep our kids playing sports. We've got to get back to a normal everyday routine um, and learn to live with this virus and, and navigate it together as families, communities, and as a state. And, uh, you know, the one thing with kids that I've noticed with my family and anybody that has kids, one of the most important things you can do to give your kids success is establish a routine. And I think with COVID breaking up that routine, as adults, we don't really see it as much. Um, I, I kind of got it when I was in the military because it's all about routine. But when you break that routine with our children, that really impacts them in a negative way because you need routine, especially when you get older and get into the adult world and the, you know, the real world working, you have to have that routine. And, and that just, it scares me with, you know, every county is talking, we're going to, we want to shut down schools. We're going to keep them open, this, that, the other thing. And even the questionability of how we're going to go forward in our schools and the uncertainty is causing stress on our children and our parents as well. And as you know, when a parent's stressed out, it goes back on the kids. So they're getting a twofold. Boy, that's the truth. I, I just did a Zoom call with about 25 moms up in uh, Pitkin, Garfield, and Eagle County. And they were telling me about the day-to-day um, kind of situation up there. Uh, one kid gets quarantined, sent home for five days. The sibling doesn't have to. It's very inconsistent. They can't work consistently because they don't have child care, so they have to stay home if their kids do get quarantined. And now they're talking about different mandates, and, and it's just not working. It's not working for families right now. And I appreciate this idea of local control, but there's not a lot of consistency on how we're approaching keeping our kids in school and keeping our kids playing sports and letting them have their social activities. That has got to be priority number one right now for their mental health, for the parents' mental health. And so that um, families can get back to making a living too, because it's getting so stinking expensive to live in Colorado. Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the, I think everybody can agree on that. It's how scary it is, whether you're one side or the other, it doesn't matter. Um, Everybody's alarmed at the increase of costs that have happened since then. Is there any solution that's realistic Oh, yes. I think there, we can do a lot of things differently. I mean, it was, uh, it was uh, entertaining to see the state of the state yesterday and, and um, hear about the whiplash and taking back some of the taxes and fees that they had put into play just a few months ago. I mean, we've got to do everything we can to lower taxes on families and fees, which are taxes, and have transparency about what's happening with our budget and why things are getting so expensive around the supply chain. We've got to do everything we can to make it um, less onerous to open a business and create jobs and keep people employed. A lot of these feel-good policies they're putting through are suffocating small business owners. And the small business owners I know, and um, you know, I know a lot of them because of my um, entrepreneurial background, 
they care deeply about their employees, about their customers. They want to do everything they can to keep them safe and take care of them and provide good benefits. But we don't need the heavy hand of government telling us what that looks like. We need to trust business owners to make good decisions for their staff and for their customers. We need to trust parents to make good decisions for their kids. And we need to trust people to make good decisions for their lives and their health. Why do you think it is that um, we're that decision makers are holding on so tight to um, all these mandates? Why why do you think that is? Oh boy! Well, it's um, it's it's I think it's a power play. I think it's easier to um, control the money and control what happens um, around policy if they can um, you know keep everybody scared or fearful and locked down. This is Colorado. I mean, we have uh, this rugged individualism here and we have the wild, wild west kind of mentality. And I think that's the number one frustration I'm seeing around the state is this is not a place where we want the government controlling our lives or telling us what to do or how to run our business or educate our kids. This is about freedom. It's about living the Colorado way of life, which is you do your thing, I'll do mine. I want to control my life, not yours. And just generally... um, trusting people to make good decisions. And, you know, Action 22, even though we do have Pueblo and El Paso County in our area, um, we're rural. You know, the the majority of our counties, 20 of them are very rural counties. You can even argue that Pueblo is a rural county. Um, The rural lifestyle, even through the pandemic, it's kind of like they've always been on their own, right? They'll figure it out. It's to the point, it's like, well, they're doing all this stuff up there. We're going to figure it out down here. We don't get a piece of the pie, so we'll make our own pie. But as we saw in the last legislative session, you saw some of the policies and politics out of the Denver area specifically coming down and impacting rural. And right now, our rural communities are really freaking out. They're, they're really nervous about what's going to happen this legislative session. Um, and you said it at the beginning, you know, the, the rural parts of Colorado have always been ignored. And I, I agree with that. Um, I, I don't think it's intentionally. I think it's more of a miscommunication. And also when you get into politics, it's where are the votes? So you're going to go to Denver, uh, Colorado Springs. And, you know, who cares about Sawatch, basically. But with these new policies that we're seeing out of Colorado, it is impacting the rural areas significantly. So Let's speak about that a little bit. What some ideas you have to allow the rural parts of our state prosper in these times, in these challenges coming up? Well, rural Colorado is the heartbeat of our state. It's why we have such an amazing place to live here. And so first and foremost, we need to respect the people, the business owners, the teachers in rural Colorado and listen to them. And my priority is to be a voice for rural Colorado. I grew up in Monument, which is a small town. I wouldn't call it rural Colorado. Maybe it was when I moved there in 78. But uh, There's cows in Monument. (laughs) I I have friends up there. There's cows in Monument. (laughs) A few love. barometer for that, yeah. But I, I, you know, I think I will advocate always for the folks of rural Colorado. They're near and dear to my heart. And most of the people who have lived here a long time, we understand how important it is to our state. And we've got to protect farmers and ranchers and property owners, mineral and water rights. We've got to have an all of the above energy approach. Um, You know, one side likes to, to claim that they're the only ones who care about the environment. That's just ridiculous. The environment's important to all of Colorado and every Coloradan. And we can ensure sure that we have affordable energy that is clean and safe and still 
be advocates for clean air, clean water, clean land. And we've got to fix the roads to our beautiful Western slope. That's a, that's a mess right now. And we've got to aggressively manage our fire prevention efforts as we saw up in Marshall with the Marshall fire. And we've got to develop broadband in gap areas and create um, employment opportunities for the kids of rural Colorado so they can stay in their hometowns. Um, I think those are the most important things I'll focus on as far as um, being an advocate and a voice for our, our beautiful Eastern and Western slope and Southern Colorado. I, the thing that you just said that I really liked that um, I haven't, I don't hear all the time is um, respect. And I, I worry. So yesterday I was at the state of the state and um, it was an interesting experience to be up there. And, um, you know, action 22, we really, because we're so anti-partisan, we enjoy very productive relationships with all of our elected officials, our legislators and everything. And it's, it's because we're so passionately nonpartisan. One of the things, and we, we've seen this before, we've seen this a number of times, but uh, there was a protest that was going on um, outside the Capitol and it's that it was pressure, but it was protesting um, Governor Polis because he has not done enough uh, to reverse climate change. And you've got to wonder where we're at that um, somebody like Polis, who has done a tremendous amount of work um, toward it, whatever, whatever that is, it's not, it doesn't seem to be enough. Um, and so it's, it's interesting when we talk about Coloradans are all environmentalists, but why, um, why do you think it is that um, some of our leaders feel like it's Coloradans' responsibility to um, reverse climate change and it's on the backs it's breaking it would you know it's okay to break the backs of Coloradans for climate change to reverse that you know Sarah one of the things I've learned um, since I launched my campaign is that we produce some of the cleanest energy on the planet right here in Colorado it's called the Colorado molecule and um, the current leadership in our state has effectively shut down energy production so instead of producing energy here where we do it the right way, we're sending our energy production overseas to bad players and bad actors who don't do it the right way and don't care about the environment. It doesn't make any sense at all. We should be incentivizing innovation in the energy industry. And, and the, the companies that I know and have talked to are doing just that. That's why we have some of the cleanest production on the planet right here. So, uh, you know, that doesn't make sense to me. But um, Polis has led the effort to go completely renewable by 2030, and that has um, severely hampered the energy industry here in Colorado, and that does push energy production to the bad players. So there's no logic there. And doing things like hosting a meet-out day. Now, I'm married to one of the top barbecue guys in the state, so that didn't go well in our house. Um, in fact, we had some fun with that when I launched the campaign. We called it the Meet Heidi Barbecue Tour. Um, and a young journalist came up to me and said, Hey, you spelled meat wrong on your banner. And I'm like, no, that's not the case. But we had some fun with it. But um, really, I have so much respect for the farmers and ranchers and energy producers around this state. They're why we have such an amazing economy, an amazing um, spirit about our state. That's why people love moving here. And we've got to remind people of that uh, next time they want to vote to introduce wolves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and even with the energy stuff, um, I agree with you. I, I've always thought, and I worked for a congressman that preached the all of the above energy model. Um, 
but you initially saw it go after coal, right? It was like, we have to shut down coal-fired plants, which we've been dealing with here in Pueblo with Comanche and Excel for years. And it's coming to an end soon, not necessarily the best end, but it, it is. And one of the talking points that you heard, and I'm talking like five or six years ago, it's like, well, we're going to be on natural gas, right? So we'll shut down coal. We're going to build up these natural gas facilities. And then what do we hear this year? well, natural gas isn't good. We need to get off natural gas. So it's kind of like, okay, shut this down. We still have this. No, we're going to pull this back too. And we're going to go more towards this. And, you know, we, we've been advocates here in the area for solar um, just because there's a lot of agriculture lands that can't be used due to water issues or farmers retiring um, and they want to bring in solar. So there's even challenges. You, you want to switch to this renewable energy model they can't even put up solar fields right now due to policy, red tape, you know, permitting, just name it, throw a dart at a dartboard with that says government. And it's like, oh, I want solar. I can't do it because of five reasons on this board. So as we transition to this renewable energy standard, they're making it, or it is, I'm not saying they're making it, but it is so difficult to even get to that point. And they're cutting out the clean energy in the meantime that they said that we could use. So yeah, and that's, it's hurting the poorest in our communities too. I mean, who's oh, going to be yeah. able to afford their heating bills this winter? It's going to be brutal. Uh, I've heard this saying, eat or heat. People are going to have to decide between feeding their, their kids a, a healthy protein-filled meal or um, heating their home. And it, that's, not, that's not the Colorado way of life. That's not how we do things here. And there are better ways to approach this. And, and all of the above approach, incentivize innovation, and making sure that we get rid of unnecessary regulations that put the energy in industry in a chokehold. Yep. And then going from energy, you're seeing this kind of move into the agricultural space as well with methane emissions, water, um, even pesticides. There's some legislation coming up that will regulate pesticides in a certain way. I, I didn't read much into it, but I think it goes county by county versus a state regulation model? Is that? Yeah, I think there's going to be um, a couple of those just on pesticides. So um, there's there's going to be a number of legislation to um, to regulate for things that I don't, we don't see as there's pro, this problem exists, but we're going to create um, legislation to address a problem that doesn't exist. Um, and we're seeing, we saw that last session. We're going to see that more this session. But the big question is, um, as, as we've seen this divide happen over the last few years, and it's gotten worse and worse, and everybody acknowledges that it's worse and worse, and our rural communities um, in the banner of trying to do what's right for everybody uh, um, at the expense of rural communities um, and how they make their lifestyle there, uh, there's it hasn't gotten brought back to reasonable anything. So that's going to be the big question. Regardless, how do you do that? How do you um, stop people from digging their heels in and caring about Colorado over party and party agenda, caring about Coloradans? So let's say that you are the next governor. You've got a legislature that's most likely not going to be on your team. How do you walk that back? How do you build those bridges? That's the big question I think that all of us have in when we look around and we see 
this divide that everybody's got, how is it, I, it doesn't even seem possible to, to bring it back in any productive way. Well, I think that the key is listening to people and having conversations and spending time out in communities, um, hearing stories and meeting people who are living these problems every day. And then sitting people down and trying to find places of agreement. That was some great advice I got when I first joined the Regent Board, which is one of the feistiest political boards in Colorado, um, was find some little way to connect or to find agreement and then build off of that, build trust with the people that you're working with across the aisle. And that's worked really well. You hear a lot about the dissension that goes on at the Regent Board, but 90% of the time we get a lot of great things done. And it's because we have relationships and we know each other's kids and we know each other's um, likes and passions and we know what issues are important to people. And there are the, the best solutions come from both sides working together and meeting in the middle. And you've got to get there. You've got to get there. We can as Colorado. It's something we've always done so well. And um, I, I'm very optimistic that we can get back there, whether it's a, a Democrat legislature and I'm the governor or whether we, ha we have the whole thing. We've got to do what's right for the people of Colorado and stop looking at policies in California. We're listening to Kim Kardashian for advice. I mean, it's just gotten comical. It's like, let's just get back to, to making the people of Colorado our priority. And, you know, there is one issue that, that both the Democrats and Republicans are talking about that they, they recognize needs to be addressed in the state of Colorado, and that's crime. Um, you know, Pueblo had one of the most violent years we've had in a long time. I don't know how many shootings there were, but there were a lot this last year. And even our district attorney, um, you know, he said some not kind words about some of the policies coming out from the legislatures that affected and impact his job to basically put people in jail and keep them off the streets that need to be in jail. And part of it too is in Pueblo, we have overcrowding in the jail. They're actually building a new jail that will, will solve that, but it's still two or three years out. Um, we did see some policy that I think made it easier for criminals to be on the street come out the past two years. So, and again, the Democrats and Republicans are saying now we have to do something about crime. Um, what, what's some of your thoughts on the state of the criminal empire of Colorado at the moment? <laughs> <laughs> it's heartbreaking. It doesn't have to be this way. I mean, when you get rid of the death penalty, you get rid of life in prison, you get rid of cash bail for most people people. You empty the prisons. You don't feel like, I think we're 30% low on state troopers right now. We're soft on drugs. It's just one thing after the other that makes it harder and harder for our law enforcement officers to do their job. So first and foremost, we need to return to law and order with a strong parole board. I would, I would let go of everybody on the current parole board day one and replace them with people who respect law and order and don't want to empty our prisons or let criminals out on a PR bond. Um, I think we've got to get back to truth in sentencing. So if someone is sentenced to five years, they stay in prison for five years. They don't stay in prison for 12 months and get back out and, and repeat their crime. And then we've got to look at bail reform. We've got to stop allowing for the release of repeat offenders. We've got to support our law enforcement community and provide resources for training and recruiting. That's another huge issue. And We've got to address um, homelessness. It's rampant. It's not just in Denver anymore. It's all over the state. Um, we can do that by ending public drug use, by prosecuting criminal behavior, 
and using outcome-based funding models and then cleaning up our streets and parks. It's not acceptable to be afraid to walk your dog in downtown Denver because they're going to get a needle stuck in their paw or a child's going to pick up some drugs and have an overdose because it was left on the street. That's not the Colorado way of life. And um, with that, uh, opioids, uh, a, a big thing that has been part of my life for the, for a long time was uh, opioid abuse, whether it's, you know, heroin to prescription pills or fentanyl. Um, COVID kind of overshadowed that we, there was a, large conversation nationally and even at a state level and local level about opioid abuse and then COVID hit. And it seems like everybody forgot about it. And I know they're still working on it, but you know, the media is not talking about it. And I think that was the biggest push pre COVID was the media was covering all these overdoses, fentanyl, um, you know, just basic opioid abuse. Uh, what would you say or what do you feel would be a good way to address the opioid problem in Colorado? And there's different levels to it. It, it goes to the drug cartels bringing in fentanyl and they're here. I, I mean, I've sat on a task force for years and they were tracking drug cartel lieutenants in Colorado that were basically, it was a highway of drugs coming up here to disperse around the country to just prescription abuse or you know, other examples, your doctor prescribed you opioid for 10 years and now you can't get it. And so you go to heroin on the street. What, what's some thoughts and ideas about how you would deal with this issue in Colorado? Well, first and foremost, um, possessing a certain amount of fentanyl that can kill a group of people shouldn't have been a misdemeanor. That was a bad decision. Um, you know, we've got to address addiction with compassion and have more access to care because right now there's not enough. There's not enough beds. There's not enough frontline workers. There's not enough education. Um, and we have to have consequences for criminal behavior, especially selling these drugs and specifically selling drugs to kids. You need to go to jail if you sell kids drugs, whether it's marijuana, fentanyl, heroin, whatever. It's, it's not okay. And that's part of the reason we have the fifth highest drug addiction rate in the country for our kids. I mean, that just burns me up. Um, so that's going to be a huge priority for me. Um, and then supporting the families. Um, it's very difficult as a family a family member watching a loved one struggle, you don't have access to help or resources. You can't even talk to people about your family member in some cases. So we've got to give our family members that are dealing with this, the love and support and resources that they need um, to help their loved one get through this. So it's about tough love. It's about compassion. It's about resources. And it's about making it a priority to protect our kids. So the lot of discussion is going to surround how to spend all of this money. And there's a lot of discussion, of course, about what you just described. Um, there's going to be a lot of opinions on the approach to what you just described. Uh, so if you were on the JBC, what would your priorities be for how we spend this tremendous amount of, of money that um, the state now has really at its disposal? It's, you know, the state budget has doubled since 2009. We, we've got a lot of money. I've got a lot of resources. And I see so much waste and so much um, uh, misuse of the money. It's not, it's not being effectively spent. So that's going to be my first priority is to figure out what we're spending on what solutions, what's working, what's not. That's what I've done at CU. And I, I try to always hold CU accountable for how we're spending those precious tuition dollars and are they doing the job that we need them to do. 
So that's the first thing. The second thing is seeing how we can streamline bureaucracy and make sure that if money can go into the back into the pocket of taxpayers, it should. We need to protect Tabor. It's very important. That's why we still have a strong economy. And despite a lot of these policies is because of Tabor. And number three, we've got to look at the issues that are really affecting our children and their future here in Colorado, one of which is crime, one of which is mental health, one of which is education. Oh, my goodness. Um, the average classroom in Colorado gets about $250,000 in funding. Only $50,000 of that goes to the teacher pay. Let's get more money out of the pockets of administrators and teachers unions and back into the classroom and into the pockets of teachers and let them do their job. We can make classrooms smaller. That's one of the most effective ways you can help kids get a better education. We can fund the student, not the system. So if like as a, uh, an example, we have a lot of kids between all of us, they all learn differently. One school may not be the right fit for all four of my kids. If I can have access to the funding so that I can educate my kids based on what I feel is best, so giving power back to parents and families about how to educate their kids, I think we'll see a huge shift in education and success rates when kids can learn how they learn best. And parents know that better than anybody. So there was a really interesting thing that happened. And, and I should tell you that um, my husband is a teacher and he's been a teacher for a really, I think he's over 20 years now. Um, and we, so we have this discussion a lot about what's actually the funding that's actually getting into the classroom. He is, um, he teaches in a small mountain school. Um, it's been, when I grew up there, he teaches now at the school uh, where I grew up. Um, it was like going to a private school then. Um, but the teachers had a lot more autonomy. It was going into the classroom. Um, they had, you know, they had some maneuverability on on what was going to work for those, you know, for their students. And they did a really, really good job. That's all gone away. Um, he has, he's a science teacher and there's one other science teacher. Um, the entire budget that they get for all of their science, everything per year is about $250. Oh my goodness. That's so that's terrible. how much they get um, in the classroom. They constantly have to come up with more and more to do. They have more and more put on their plate for less and less and less and less. So they have to spend a whole lot of their time um, basically filling out curriculum mapping and all of this other stuff they have to do when they're just trying to take care of their, their students. In addition to that, he coaches and he's also started guitar club at this school because they've, you know, they don't fund any kind of um, performing arts or anything like that anymore. So he, you know, this morning he says to me, um, I'm going to, I'm going to put a little bit in guitar guitar club because we have several guitars, but they all need to be restrung. I'm like, no, absolutely do that. But we have a conversation like that about once a week because there's nothing, um, there's nothing there. We, they have to do fundraise for everything and do everything um, with very, very little. And I asked him at the beginning of the year, you know, as they've gone through this, what's some of your biggest, you know, we've, they dealt with this. So we have, you know, the kids at home, the twins were at home, my husband was trying to be a teacher at home, all of that. So we got a taste of every every level of everything um, that's going on. There's, We just have a new school board and it's really interesting. I was having a conversation um, the other night at a basketball game and 
they were talking about sort of the angst, but what this school district did down here is they had all of these assistant superintendents. And one of the first things that the boards did was get rid of, you know, a bunch of these super, you know, assistant superintendents because there was no value added to the classroom. And people are really freaking out about that. They're really freaking out that the school board would do that. And I just said, look, why are we, what I'm hearing from teachers is they need a more of the para pros. We had so many teachers say what we really need in the classroom is we have all these diverse learners and we can't get the para pros to support the diverse learners in the classroom. And so there's almost no management. Um, there, it's just, it's, you, it's not a healthy learning environment. Um, and so as we talk about these things, you said, you said two things that I really liked. One is you said respect another point of view, but listen to those, those teachers. And that hasn't been happening. So it's an interesting sort of switch that we had a school board that came in and they were all new and very um, wide range of, of um, points of view. And so everybody was worried about that because you had very left and very right on a school board. And so we're all sort of sitting back and watching that. But somehow they were saying this is what needs to be done. And they got in there and they did it. But that school funding is something we talk about over and over again. And I can't remember. It depends on who I hear it from. But we're close to a billion dollars that's owed um, schools that we've that we've just sort of put off paying out to schools in a little bit. What would you do about school funding? Well, I think, again, we've got to make sure that the funds that we have are being spent effectively and that we're very transparent about what's happening with those dollars and getting as many of those dollars into the classroom so that we can effectively teach our kids. One of the things I've noticed in higher education as a regent, the administrative bloat is out of control. I mean, we have administrators for every possible thing known to mankind. And I see that in K through 12 also. So first we've got to make sure that the dollars are being spent well. And we're very, very conscientious about keeping those dollars in the classroom. Second, um, you know, I think there is, um, there's a lot of funds that we can shift or reallocate to um, helping children learn, whether it's tutoring or outside activities because schools don't sponsor it. Um, We've got to see, how best to do that because a lot of families are really struggling outside of the classroom to support their their kids' education, right? And so the third thing I think we need to do is make sure that if money is owed back into the education system, that um, we do it in a conscientious way where we know how it's being spent, it's transparent, and that the voters support that. So um, that's how, how I think we get get beyond that, um, that challenge. So, uh, we got about 10 more minutes left. Um, I wanted to ask you two things. The first one is as my 16, soon to be 17 year old daughter is looking at colleges, they're terrified about how much this is going to cost. Um, and and we've, we've talked with the, the CU system and they're going to give her a tour and, I think it would be affordable with certain programs and everything going here. She doesn't want to go there. She wants, of course, every young teenage girl wants to go to like New York or somewhere, somewhere far away from her parents. Yeah, Uh, mine went to Oregon. (laughs) And, um, you know, I'm just looking at these schools that they're sending her stuff and I'm like, holy, 
you know what? Like, I can't afford this. How are we going to do this? Like, why does this cost so much? Why am I going to spend more money than I've made in 15 years for four years of school for my daughter? Like, what can we do about this? Well, Brian, there's a couple things I would recommend you do. Number one is make sure she takes as many um, college credit classes in high school as she possibly can. Um, number two, make sure she knows exactly what degree she wants to, to get before she goes to a four-year college. And um, because the number one way you drive up costs is by shifting your degree or not knowing exactly what path you want to go. So it might make more sense to go to a community college for a couple of years or do online. There are some amazing online programs that she can do while she works and saves some money and figures out what path she wants to take. Aren't, um, internships and apprenticeships are a great thing to do before you commit to um, going to college for a career. You know, ask a company if you can shadow for a month or try some different things. Be bold and brave about that. Ask the CEO of the company that you admire most or your daughter should um, if she can come hang out for a week and see what it's like. So really getting a feel for what direction she wants to go in so she doesn't waste time and your precious resources. And then finally, graduating on time. They, they're starting to use six-year graduation rates and they don't advertise that a lot, but that's a very slippery slope. I mean, that in, increases the cost tremendously and it doesn't need to happen. If a, if a student goes in knowing what they want to do, what degree they want and has access to the classes, which is an important question you should ask the college, how many, what percentage of students don't get the classes they need so it takes them longer to graduate than they have to, then um, I would steer clear of that, that college. Um, and then finally, making sure that the field that she gets into is going to end up with a good paying job. <laughs> and it's, it's pretty um, easy to get access to information on what jobs are paying well and what jobs are needed in the future. I'm on the board of an organization called ACTA, which is the American Council for Trustees and Alumni. They have a great website called goacta.org. And there's some tools and calculators you can use to look at colleges on what will they learn, so what the curriculum looks like. And then number two, how colleges spend money so that you know they're spending the money on the right thing. And three, that your child will graduate on time with the degree that gets them a good job. Now, this is more rhetorical than anything. Being a parent, how do you convince her of these things? <laughs> <laughs> I think having some skin in the game is really important. So either she works while she's in school on a work study or um, is paying for part of the expenses and that you sit down and meet with her and talk about the expenses and the investment and give her alternatives. You know, if you go to community college for two years and then you switch to a university, here's what we'll pay and here's what your you know return on investment will look like. And maybe we'll throw in a car if that's the case. I mean, just I would lay out different options and talk through the financial incentives or impact of the different options and then have her put some skin in the game and then have her um, do some um, counseling or testing on what careers would be good for her. There's some great um, coaches out there. There's a wonderful book called Never Pay Retail for College that a friend of mine wrote that helps students think through those things and also think outside of the box about different schools or universities that they might go to. Maybe a small school in Iowa would be a really good fit, or maybe you know the University of Colorado is a better fit just with a different program or one of the different campuses like UCCS. Coming to a close, uh, I'd like to ask all of our guests to share a positive story with us over your time as either a regent or any point. Just something good, something heartwarming that um, 
not negative. Everything's so negative now. And I <laughs> think we're missing these like feel good stories. So want to share something with us? Yeah. One of my favorite things we've been able to do at CU um, is create this thing called the free to be coalition. And it was with the intent to bring people with differing views together on stage to have a debate. Like you don't see many honest, true debates anymore over issues. And when I got to see you, I found out that there was not a, an active debate club. I'm like, are you <laughs> kidding me? Like, that's crazy. That's why people go to college, right? To, to be challenged and to learn how to critically think. And so we put together a couple big debates. One, the first one was with Nigel Farage and Vincente Fox on um, globalism versus nationalism. And we had a huge crowd. People loved it. Um, we had people walking out saying, and Nigel and Vincente got along great. They had a feisty conversation, but didn't get mean or nasty and had very different points of view. But people walked out of that room, students, community members, faculty saying, huh, I actually got a lot from both sides. I understand the perspectives and I have a different viewpoint um, than I did going in. And then we did another one on the moral case for fossil fuels with Bobby Kennedy Jr. and Alex Epstein. And then we had Sarah Carter come in and do a debate on the opioid crisis. So it was just a lot of fun to see people having critical conversations and debate each other and still walk out friends with different perspectives. And that's my hope for how, what we can get back to in higher education and in society. Awesome. Well, where can people find more information about you, your campaign, being a regent, anything like that throughout your websites, emails, contacts laid out. Thank you. It's HeidiForGov.com. And of course we're on Instagram and Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, um, and, uh, you can, it, there's lots to learn about me, whether it's dogs, barbecue, um, politics, kids, I talk about all the issues online and I'm very excited about this opportunity to change the direction of Colorado and be the next governor. Um, and if people want to get involved, they can donate, they can volunteer, they can host an event for us, invite us to speak. We're going to have some fun rallies all over Colorado and make it fun again to be in politics. That's one of our goals as a campaign. We love it. It sounds great. Heidi, thanks so much for being with us. We're, we're looking forward to the dialogue that, uh, that we hope that you can bring to the table as we go forward. We, um, will have lots of opportunities, uh, with Action 22 to do a few of those things and do exactly what you just described. So, we appreciate you joining us and appreciate you joining Action 22 and being a part of, of that discussion and that, um, preservation of Colorado, for lack of a better way to say it. And by the way, uh, I asked the question why you're running and uh, um, for love of state um, was the perfect answer, I thought. Um, and I appreciate that so much. So thanks everybody for joining us uh, for another episode of Making Action Happen. If you haven't already joined Action 22, you need to do that. You need to be a part of the discussion. You need to be a part of the voice and you need to be a part of what we're doing to actually make a difference in Colorado that is not about politics, but all about substance. So join us next week. Uh, we're going to have, um, we have some interesting people coming up, but uh, next week we're going to be in Denver for Voices of Rural Colorado. That is one of the big events that we do every year with Club 20 and Pro 15. We come together as a strong rural voice. We will have um, a lot of really great speakers. We're going to be talking about opioid we're going to the opioid epidemic. We're going to be talking about the future of ag. We're going to be talking about water, which is one of the things that is a really big deal happening in Colorado right now, almost every 
every day we talk about either water, Brian and I are having discussion with somebody on either water or energy um, and or education. Those are the three big ones right now. Um, and then we will um, also be joined um, on day two by uh, Governor, um, Governor Polis and Phil Weiser. And it's just an opportunity for you as a member of one of these rural organizations to really connect in a meaningful way and have those discussions. So if you have any more questions on that, um, you can go to our website and figure out how to uh, be a part of that. Um, that will be next week. Um, and so we're going to be having a lot of our guests. It will be at that event and, and part of that event. So um, is there anything else, Brian? Yeah. Um, any questions, comments, or concerns, you can email us at show at action22.org. Um, if you want to come on the show, you want to join Action 22, same email, show at action22.org. Find us on YouTube and all podcast platforms. If you go on YouTube, please subscribe to our channel. We're trying to build that up right now. We're changing things around. So the background here will probably look different every episode for the next <laughs> dozen or so until we figure ideas. it out how yeah. to do it. Yeah. Um, and then again, action22.org is our website. If you want to, le- want to learn more, just go there and that's it. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for tuning in to Making Action Happen. Be sure to join your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain, for another edition of the show on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. This episode of Making Action Happen is sponsored by Action 22's amazing energy leaders, Excel Energy, Colorado Rural Electric Association, Colorado Oil and Gas Association, Gil Romero and the Capital Success Group, Black Hills Energy, Nextera Energy, San Isabel Electric Association, Outshine Energy, Colorado Solar and Storage Association, Tri-State and 174 Power Global. Action 22 is a nonpartisan, membership-driven organization which serves as a voice for action on public policy for 22 southern Colorado counties on the state and federal level. We focus on how issues relating to Colorado legislation, local government affairs, health care, education, and natural resources intersect for the economic health of our region. If you're a leader in your community and are considering joining Action 22, you can get more information by emailing show at action22.org or visit our website at action22.org.